0: This is a Federal News Network podcast.
1: In normal times, the grounding of more than half of the Washington metro rail fleet would be a huge snag for government operations with pandemic levels of teleworking. So far, it's mainly an inconvenience. But my next guest argues local jurisdictions need to get moving now with alternative ways for feds and contractors to get to work. Salim Firth is a research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University, and he joins me now. Salim, good to have you on. Good morning. And let's talk about the effect of metro normally on Washington, D.C. Is it fair to say that in Washington, the metro has a bigger effect on the ability of the government to operate smoothly than any other metro system in another city has on any other profession, if that makes sense. Sure. The
0: D.C. workforce and downtown D.C. as an economic and employment entity absolutely relies on metro. Now, you know, maybe the finance industry in New York is as reliant on on the New York metro. But uh, the point is not comparison. The point is, in normal times, D.C. can't run. We can't move people through the city without Metro.
1: And those finance people all have limos anyway with chauffeured drivers, don't they? And red carpets rolling out of the sides. I don't know. That's why you can
0: walk faster than the traffic in NYC. (laughs) That's right.
1: Exactly right. And give us a sense of how over the decades of Metro that it maps to where the federal government is. I mean, the original model of Metro was a hub and spoke Situation where everything was downtown and everybody lived on the suburbs ringing around it. That's not really the case anymore, though, is it?
0: That's true. So Metro still is mainly hub and spoke, and, and that's the right way to do uh, rail, right? So you can't you can't match all these suburban origins and destinations via a fixed line system. But as the as the federal government has expanded, it's chosen sites outside of D.C. that are served by Metro, whether that's contractors in Tyson's, the NIH, and Bethesda. The Census Bureau in Suitland. So, and lots of folks now actually live downtown and then commute out when they know they have stable employment uh, with one major employer, Biometro, site in the suburbs.
1: Yeah, I'd add IRS in New Carrollton also to that mix. All right, so just maybe paint a picture for us what it would look like if it was normal times and all of the people were scurrying to and fro on L'Enfant Plaza and some of these big downtown areas. Normal times, no pandemic, and this happened to Metro. What would it be like?
0: So Metro right now is basically capped out carrying something like 150,000 people a day with the very reduced service, having pulled their 7,000 series rail cars out of service for an indeterminate amount of time. That's 150k. That's not too far below what it was two weeks ago because of pandemic work. But if you go back to 2019, Metro was carrying daily about 650,000 people, right? So, we're at something like a quarter of the normal service and it's and it's busy, you know, at rush hour it's hard to get on a train. If this was 2019 and people didn't have their home offices set up to work, we would be in in just an absolute crisis. Uh it'd be like, you know, one of those massive snowstorms but but going on without end. And uh you know, I I think There's actually a little bit of complacency that's been bred by the pandemic because we don't know what the solution is and how long it's going to take Metro to get itself back to normal here. This is
1: a 7000 series train. Golly, they might be listening. And there's one added effect, too, and that is that the district has deliberately pinched road capacity pretty steadily over the past couple of years where maybe there were two lanes on a street. Now there's one lane in each direction and the bicycles and scooters and little rented death traps that people like to ride on are taking up that leftover lane. So it would be harder to drive in if people suddenly drove on Moss too. Fair to say?
0: Yeah. So, well, I think I differ with you on, on the the usefulness of removing car space. And in general, cars are the least efficient way to move a large number of people into a small area. So Having those kind of last mile options does bring people to Metro. It does move people around the city more freely. The big solution has got to be bus lanes, you know, to replace Metro service. Cars are ultimately capped out by parking spaces. You've got these parking garages. They're sort of at an equilibrium. Now, it's a pre-pandemic equilibrium. So there's, there's going to be lots of empty spaces now. But if we were to try to function for a long time without Metro, you're not going to be able to build garage space fast enough. You've got to move people in ways that imitate, you know, metro capacity, that's got to be uh, buses on, on dedicated lanes. Thinking outside the car is, is really the only solution to move a large number of people to a small area.
1: We're speaking with Salim Firth. He's a research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. And you've got this multi jurisdictional involvement in metro and operations and the interrelatedness of buses and rails and different divisions. The federal government's something of a peripheral player in all this, money aside. So, what should happen now to mitigate the situation and make sure that, suppose, they take out the 7,000 cars, 648 of the 7,000 series cars? At some point in the future, when things are fully open, then what?
0: Yeah, and that's why I started writing about this on day one, because this isn't the kind of problem where one person, you know, one mayor, one president, anyone can drag all the people into the room and dictate a solution, right? There are, you know, D.C., Maryland, Virginia, there's the feds uh, who, who do own, you know, some of the highways, et cetera. And it's distributed across a bunch of authorities, even within these jurisdictions, any kind of solution to reorient our transportation system involves a lot of people compromising and so starting that conversation before you need a solution is an, is imperative because you just can't expect this many jurisdictions to come to a solution very quickly so you want to have some game planning some open lines of communication where you know the person who gets to decide how streets are laid out in in the district. The person who decides that in Maryland, you know, have each other's cell phone numbers and develop some rapport and figure out, okay, if we're going to create a bus lane, it's going to be on Georgia. No, it's going to be on 16th. Okay. Let's work that out ahead of time so that, you know, when we're suddenly in crunch time, we're not just starting these conversations. It's just trying to figure out who is it that I call in this other jurisdiction if I want to know what their bus schedule is. So, Starting that planning process, that's really, you know, I'm not a a transportation planner. I can't figure all this stuff out. But I do know enough about the politics of this area to say that these solutions aren't going to just be one smart person sitting down with a pencil and paper. It's going to be a big group effort, and it's going to take time.
1: Yeah, I do nominate 13th Street, dividing the distance there in half. Let me ask you this. What about the Transportation Department, the Federal Transportation Department? I'm trying to figure out how it could play a role because – if you look at all of its components, none of them really have to do with getting the federal government to and from work.
0: Yeah, that's right. So I can imagine Secretary Buttigieg or, or someone he deputizes being a, a figurehead or a convener of this kind of conversation, right? So if you've got these turf battles, maybe it pays to have someone who's kind of above the fray, maybe has a little bit of money to to sort of soften out the edges around, around some of these difficulties. I, I don't know that for a fact, but if at least DOT can kind of listen quietly and find out, are these conversations happening? Are the the local jurisdictions working this out well? If so, great, stand back, offer to be as assistance. But if not, if they're they're having turf wars, then maybe it's time to step in and kind of use that bully pulpit. Because right, as as you said at the top, the federal government is, is Metro's biggest customer. And it might be actually OPM rather than transportation that says, hey, we need to be part of this conversation because OPM can't you know, conceivably get everyone back to work without a functioning transportation system in the districts.
1: I guess if DOT required everyone to attend meetings at DOT headquarters and take the green line to get there, it's right across the street, that might focus the minds of the people attending the meeting. And just in your studies, do you know whether if somehow a big bus component were added here now or to maintain in the future when things are somewhat more normal, does Metro have the capacity not only in the number of buses, but in the ability to operate that many buses? Because sometimes bus service can be a
0: little dicey. Yeah, that's absolutely right. If this were normal normal times, I'm sure they wouldn't have the number of buses. Now buses, the great thing about buses, is they're easy to move around, right? So one of the problems that Metros had with the rail cars is they have literally some working rail cars, which at the beginning of the pandemic, they parked at the back of the parking lot. And it's actually like they, they don't know how to get them out right now. Buses are very easy to move. So if we needed to rent buses from Allentown, Pennsylvania, or Chicago, or whoever, we would be able to do that. The other solution is the private market, right? So, allowing coach carriers, vans, uh, Uber and, and Lyft pools, allowing them to operate and having some. So, if you, have, if you create bus lanes that have some capacity limit, right? You have to have at least four people in the vehicle or at least 10 people in the vehicle, whatever your capacity is, and allow those operators to use the bus lanes as well. Then you're kind of getting all the advantages of the private market with, you know, profit seekers coming in and saying, oh my gosh, people need to get to work in DC. I can make money providing that service. That's great. And then the public doing what the public realm does well, which is providing infrastructure, coordinating and setting up clear rules and boundaries, you know, to make sure that everyone can operate within that safely and efficiently.
1: And we could say to the federal contractors, buy us a bus and you get to wrap your company logo and marketing materials all over it for as long as that bus is in operation.
0: Yeah. The revenue possibilities are endless, right?
1: All right. And selling coffee. Salim Firth is a research fellow at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Thanks so much for joining me.
0: Thank you. Good luck getting to work today, everyone out there.
1: All right. We'll post this interview along. By the way, I take motorcycle to work most of the time. That's a lot of fun in the traffic around here. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at Federal News networkcom Drive. hear the federal drive on demand even
2: in a metro tunnel
1: Step back, door's closing. subscribe at podcast one or wherever you get your
2: shows hello and welcome to the lessons in leadership podcast i am your host shane canfield ceo of wepa today i'm thrilled to be joined by vice admiral cutler dawson cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the navy where he attained the rank of vice admiral